and good morning. It is a pleasure to bring God's word to you this morning. Uh, Harlan Thromby, the rich and successful murder mystery novel writer of the hit movie Knives Out has two children. Uh, both of his children want to be in dad's good graces and to get their share of his inheritance. His daughter, Linda, figures that as long as she plays dad's game and follows the rules, she will get her fair share. While his son, Walt, who has been given authority over the family publishing company, um, doesn't do anything for himself, but rather claims his dad's good gifts as his own good works. Here we have two different approaches. Linda, who is always trying really, really hard to earn dad's good favor, and Walt, who is never showing any fruit for the wonderful favor he's been given. I wonder, uh, on the one hand, I'm sorry, on the one hand, we have legalistic Linda, and on the other, woefully lazy Walt. I wonder how many of us think about Christianity this way. Either, on the one hand, we try to follow all of God's rules and earn his love and earn his favor. Or, on the other hand, we uh, pray the prayer, say we believe in Jesus, take our get-out-of-hell-free card, and keep living our lives like we do without any consequence or any change. From today's text, I want to show you that Jesus cuts between these two extremes of legalism and laziness. Would you please look with me at our text? Beginning in verse 43, it says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. And while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and brother and sister. Amen. Would you join me in a quick prayer? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth, and we thank you uh, for giving it to us and revealing it to us so that we might live righteously, Lord. Lord, but we pray, as we will see in this text, that our righteousness, Lord, which is nothing compared to what you demand of us, would not be what we hold on to, Lord. We pray that we would look to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would give me your words to speak, that you would do what I cannot do and preach through me, Lord, to the heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Over the past few weeks, we have seen Jesus heal the masses and yet be rejected by the most religious. Jesus has warned the Pharisees they are in danger of committing the unforgivable sin. He has told them that good works can only come from a good heart. He has consistently told them that they will only receive the sign of Jonah, that he will be 
killed and buried for three days in the earth and then rise on the third day. And now Jesus continues his polemic against the scribes and the Pharisees through a parable, an interruption, and a bold statement. If you get anything from this morning's sermon, I hope that you get this, that we are justified by God on the merit of Jesus' good works, not our own. I hope to show you that walking through the three main uh, scenes of the text. First, beginning with the false hope of work. Look with me at verse 43. And when the unclean spirit goes out of the person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. What do we know about this man? In verse 44, it describes the man as empty, swept, and put in order. Much like the HGTV show Hoarders, uh, this man, his outside is clean, well-ordered, and put together. But on the inside, there's a tragedy. Uh, there is garbage piled as high as the ceiling. There is trash everywhere. It is in total disrepair and total ruin. There is so much trash that people could even be crushed underneath it. And the only way to traverse the inside of the house in the HGTV show Hoarders is through beaten down pathways like you would find in a jungle excursion. And in comes HGTV to the rescue. They uh, tell the hoarder of the great family concern, the great risk of fire, disease, uh, eviction, permanent damage, and they, after convincing the hoarder of the need of this renovation, completely renovate the house. They clean the trash, organize the valuables, clean the floors, walls, ceilings, make needed repairs, and turn what was a dump site into a livable situation, a livable home again. Much like the hoarder, in HGTV's hit show, this man is living in an internal state of ruin. Internal woes seem to be everything this man knows. He is possessed by the demon. But then the demon leaves, and much like the people in HGTV series Hoarders, he thinks, okay, everything is right. He empties his house, finds it swept and put in order. But Matt Paxton, the show's host, says the success rate, that is the, the success rate of getting the hoarder free from a hoarding lifestyle is 60% with therapy. The rate of relapse back into the hoarding lifestyle is 100% without therapy. He says it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Just like the hoarder without the inward work of therapy, all of us fall back to sin without the inward work of the Holy Spirit. The besetting attacks of, of this demon had left this man's life cluttered, destroyed, chaotic. Something had to change in this man's life if he was to carry on, and it seems like something had changed. Notice the contrast of what was cluttered, destroyed, and chaotic. Once the demon leaves, is now empty, 
swept and put in order. We see, on one hand, enslavement, and on the other hand, positive change in one man. How does this happen? In biblical terms, we have two types of work. We'll talk about one now. We'll get to the other one later. But the first type of work is self-justifying. It is a self-justifying type of work. And it seems to be the work that is most clearly evidenced in this man. Many people uh, think about this work and they think, oh, I can do this on my own. Makes people think I, they can be good enough and they can do it by themselves. Like HGTV shows hoarders, the HGTV... TV comes into those and thinks, ah, here's somebody we can fix. How many of us, I wonder, know somebody who commits really, really hard to not do that specific sin for a really long time? Never going to do that again. Maybe it's alcohol. I'm never going to touch alcohol again. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's smoking. Maybe it's pornography, maybe it is lying or being mean or what it, whatever it is, you know that that person who commits the external change usually gives up something for a season only to find later that that thing that they had given up comes back to them and usually with some sort of self-justification on our part, right? Just like the hoarder who thinks, ah, oh, my house is clean, I won't let that happen again. We are all too prone to think, ah, oh, I can get rid of that sin and not let that happen again. We all know that inward transformation must come first. External change is important, but it isn't as important as inward change. I wonder if knowing that truth might explain our modern psychological culture. The rise of the therapeutic movement, everybody seems to be seeking some inward transformation. And yet in this man, we see somebody who thinks of himself, if I clean up my act, all will be well. But how do we know that the transformation was by his own works? How do we know that the change wasn't permanent or lasting? It is because the evil that this man had thought long gone ended up paying him back in a dreadful way. And we see the fearful reward of work. The error of working for justification or a right standing with God might be the oldest error in human history. Notice from this text that this man is compared to a house. In verse 44, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came and when it comes, it finds the house, the man, empty, swept, and put in order. The house, the man, even after the demon leaves in this parable, is always under the control of the demon. Always under his ownership. There is not a moment in this parable where this man is free from the ownership of this demon. Just because the demon left his house, he still owned his house. Demons, when compared with fallen man, may even have a better theology of God's righteous requirements for us than we do. J. 
James 2.19 says that you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Knowledge makes good tempters. In the garden, Adam and Eve had one command. One command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. And that's exactly the command by which Satan attacked, saying, did God actually say? Notice in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 3, he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is not the oldest lie that you can choose for yourself. Is this not a false hope in our works and in our own morality? Satan knew God's requirements were perfect obedience, and the demons still know that God requires perfect obedience from all his creatures today. If Satan can get you to believe that you can do it on your own, then he will have so convinced you that you have no need of God that you will be running headlong in the opposite direction. And that's why this man is compared to the Pharisees in this parable. Notice the end of verse 45, it says, so also will it be with this evil generation. Who has Jesus been attacked by in Matthew? The Pharisees. Who has Jesus been attacking back in Matthew chapter 12? The Pharisees. Who asked for a sign in verse 38, just a few verses earlier? It's the Pharisees. And how does Jesus respond to the Pharisees' question in verse 38? He calls them an adulterous and evil generation. So we can see that this man is really a parable about the legalism of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who impose all sorts of laws on God's people, that they find themselves overburdened, but outwardly the Pharisees appear to be great law keepers. They appear oh so godly. They appear put together, just like this man who appeared to be empty, swept, and put in order. Just like the hoarder's house from the outside that has the grass mowed and the bushes trimmed and and the walkways swept, but on the inside, it is a living nightmare. In reality, the Pharisees, as with this demon-possessed man, are really under the ownership of the devil. And this is not the only time that Jesus will tell the Pharisees that they belong to the devil. In John 8, Beginning in verse 44, Jesus tells the Pharisees, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And later in Matthew, Jesus also says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, 
but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I feel that sometimes I fear that we as God's people are tempted to be just like the Pharisees. We think to ourselves and hear the warnings of the scribes and Pharisees and we think, I'm so glad I'm not like them. I've trusted in Jesus. Instead, we ought to be examining ourselves to see the ways in which we are like the Pharisees, the way we do the same thing the Pharisees do. And yet so often I feel that we're so quick to look at them and say, oh, I'm not like them. Or maybe we try to overcome our own sin. and Maybe our thinking isn't like that, but maybe our actions practically are. We try to uh, get rid of the sin in our life. If I can just throw out all of uh, those movies or get rid of all of the apps on my phone or install this software that will monitor my activity or just be kinder to my wife or husband or kids or whatever you struggle with, we act just like the Pharisees when we do that. Yes, we ought to be killing our sin. We ought to, but not in our own strength, like the Pharisees. They prayed, thanking God they weren't like other sinners, and they thought that their rigid legalism would save them. When we kill our sins without first bringing it to Jesus, when we come to him without repentance, we are behaving like the very Pharisees that Jesus so vehemently condemns. And when we change our lives, when we stop drinking or stop watching pornography or stop lying to our spouses or stop getting angry with our kids over minor things and we haven't gone to Jesus, what happens? The people who know you who see the change in your life, praise you for that good work. Who did the work? You did. Who gets the glory in that? You do. Your Father who is in heaven, whom you say you worship and give the glory to, is not responsible for this change. You rob God of the glory he is due by cultivating a false righteousness self-righteousness. And consequently, notice verse 45. Jesus goes on to say, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. This is the real danger of self-righteousness, that we might actually do something good in this life. It won't be permanent good, ultimate good, but it might be really good, earthly good. We are capable of great outward, external, behavioral change. We have amazing power to do that. Look at the Pharisees. They again serve as a prime example of this. They obeyed tons and tons of laws. They thought they were perfect by their works. 
They certainly didn't think of themselves as sinners. In fact, they even condemned Jesus for eating and drinking and dining with sinners, implying that they weren't like that. They weren't sinners. They refused to hear how evil they actually were. Both Jesus and John call the Pharisees a brood of vipers. What a great, what a great insult. Jesus told them they were sons of the devils, hypocrites. But their hearts were stone, walled off from the hard truth of who they really were by their own good works. How many people today think they are well after having defeated an addiction or gotten out of debt or finally overcoming a wrong or correcting it? How many people today think that just because they experience the benefits of Christian tradition that they are good to go? Just because you grew up in the church doesn't mean you're saved. And we may never know why the demon left. Perhaps this demon was cast out by Jesus himself. Remember the story of the ten lepers where only one returned to receive the good news of the gospel. Or perhaps this demon had ensnared this man in a specific sin, and through his will to overcome that one specific sin, the demon left for a season. Or perhaps the demon is a demon and he's just restless and left. And when he couldn't find anything better, he came back. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, Surely many of the people whom Jesus cleansed of demons died and joined those demons in hell because they did not also accept the Lord's forgiveness and offer of salvation. For everyone who thinks I can be good enough or I can do enough or I have overcome my sin, this is the warning that you may be free from the demon who enslaves you now only to be reunited with so many more in the fiery pits of hell. Do not leave here thinking you are okay, that everything will be fine in your life. And to the Christian in the room, perhaps you're struggling with sin. Perhaps you, you have read this passage and thought, if I don't fill up my life with Jesus, I'll be even more possessed by evil than I was before. Perhaps you're thinking evil is just right around the corner. Here's the hope that we can trust in. This reformation in this man's life was not the work of God, was not the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that because where God dwells, no demon can dwell as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among the people and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Colossians says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God and Satan cannot dwell together just like oil and water cannot dwell together. If you are God, 
you are his, no demon can overtake you. You are his temple, and he fills you up. Okay, the legalistic Pharisees are in danger. Those who work for a just standing will never earn it. But who will earn a just standing? A just standing. We have contended that God requires perfect obedience from all his creatures. And if legalism won't save them, then what will? Here, Jesus frees us to work rightly. Notice the freedom in the king of work. The question is not, should we work? The answer is obvious. Of course we should work. The question is, what work should I trust in? Or more specifically, whose work should I trust in? Whose work should I trust in? As we saw in verses 43 to 45, we saw a type of work that leads to destruction. It is a type of work that's self-reliant, self-trusting, and ultimately, it's demonic. And here in verse 46 to 50, we see the solution, a different type of work. It's described as an answer to a question. The text says, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, he, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand to, towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Notice the relationship of those wanting to talk to Christ. Those outside are his flesh and blood, his literal mother and his brothers. And yet, Jesus, sensing a beautiful teaching opportunity, leaves them outside and asks a priceless question. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? The guy's face who probably delivered this question to Jesus was probably priceless. <laughs> he was probably thinking something like, Jesus, they're, they're right outside. I just told you. They want to talk to you. But Jesus isn't interested in his answer. Instead, Jesus gives his own. He points to his disciples. And he says, here are my mother. And here are my brothers. Let that sink in. Jesus leaves his flesh and blood standing outside and points to his followers and says, they are mine. Here they are. How amazing is that? That the brothers and sisters of Jesus are his disciples. They are his disciples. Jesus' family are those that he knows, those that know him. If you believe in Jesus, if you have turned from your sins, he says to you, you are mine, and I know you, and you are my family. And if you don't know him, and you want to be his brother, his sister, his family, all you need to do is turn to him. Jesus 
calls you, repent of your sins, he will not cast you out. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Here's what Jesus isn't saying. They earned their way into my family. They did good enough and did enough good works to be acceptable. They're good enough for me to love them. That's what Jesus isn't saying in verse 50. If Jesus were saying that, he wouldn't be condemning the legalistic Pharisees. He would be among them. I mean, they're the chief good works doers of their day. Here's what Jesus is saying. You want to see my family? Go look at their works. They prove that they're mine by how they behave. Brother, sister, friend, make no mistake about it. God desires obedience from you. He absolutely does. First Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. But he also knows you can't do it. Earlier in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Who perfectly does the will of Jesus' Father in heaven? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. In his Reformed Dogmatics, Herman Baving says this about the life and death of Christ. He said, it is one single work that the Father assigned to Jesus, and that he finished it in his death. He was born under the law, in the likeness of sinful flesh, did not live to please himself. He continually humbled himself and became obedient even to death. So it is one single ministry and one obedience which give life-giving justification to many. It is the obedient life, the obedient death, and the triumphant resurrection which justifies sinners. That is the work which justifies us. By believing in Jesus, we are adopted into his family, and all his benefits become ours. More than that, we are united with him his work is credited to us. The obedience of Jesus to the disobedient. His righteousness to the unrighteous. His law-keeping to the lawbreakers. This is the good news of trusting in Jesus' works and not our own. By our own works, we enslave ourselves. By his works, we are set free. So how should we respond? Four points of application before we close. Let's first start by examining ourselves. Are we truly part 
of Jesus' family? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Are you trusting in your work or his? When we truly put our faith in Christ, when we trust him for salvation, we are instantly members of his family. His work becomes ours. We are declared righteous, not because we did enough, but because Jesus did it all. Do you know this Jesus, the king who suffered, the king who obeyed perfectly, the king who died for his people, and the king who rose from the grave on the third day? If you do not know this Jesus, turn to Jesus. This is the most important question you could ever ask yourself. Do you know this Jesus? Turn to him, repent and believe, and be found in him. Be found in his family. Second, if you are a member of Jesus' family, then hear his words. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You are not united to Christ, given his benefits of righteousness, given the Holy Spirit, so that you can coast through life without worrying about going to hell. That's not why God gives you those gifts. You are united to Christ to do the will of his Father. You don't work for a just standing. You work from a just standing. So how should that change our life? First, confess. Confess all the ways in which you try to do it on your own, all the ways in which you are like the legalistic Pharisees. Confess and give those up. You have the Spirit to help you. You have the work of Jesus to rely on. You don't need to do it on your own. Come to Jesus. Turn back to him. Confess your sin. Examine your life against God's will. How do you know it's God's will for your life? Maybe start by reading the Bible. Start in Genesis 1 and 2 and see how Adam and Eve were created to live a righteous life before God for the glory of God. And then get to Exodus 20 and learn about the law of God and examine yourself against God's law. Where do you fall short? How do you know you fall short? Maybe, maybe you need to ask a brother or a sister where you fall short. And don't argue with them when they tell you, here's every way you fall short. Husbands, maybe you need to ask your wife if you really love her like Jesus loves the church. Do you sacrifice for her? Not just when it's easy, but when it's hard. Like getting up at 2 a.m. to feed a screaming, crying baby when you have work the next day so you can sleep a little bit longer. Hard. Wives, maybe you need to ask your husband if you really love him like the church loves Jesus. Do you submit to him or do you constantly try and rule over him? Maybe we look at our PBC covenant. Are we giving of our time, treasure, and talent to support the work of the ministry? Are we growing in obedience to Christ? 
Are we here enough to know that what's being preached here on a Sunday and taught in our Sunday schools is faithful to God's word? Are we upholding the doctrine of the church? Are we abstaining from sexual immorality, drunkenness, substance abuse, gluttony? And are we helping others to do the same? Maybe you don't know who to ask because you aren't connected to the church in any meaningful way. Maybe this is your call to get plugged in. Maybe this is your opportunity to commit to fellowship groups which are starting up soon. Maybe this is your call to join a discipleship group and learn more about what God's word teaches for your life. Maybe it's committing to going to a men's or women's ministry event or to Sunday school or to our Sunday evening services. Or maybe you need to invite a brother and sister out to church, out after church to lunch and get to know them and hear their testimony, how God brought them to saving faith and to PBC. Maybe you need to commit to a Bible reading plan. Maybe you're doing these things and it's hard. Third, we can find comfort in Jesus' sufferings. If you know Jesus, then you now know how perfectly he did his Father's will. And yet, Jesus suffered more than anyone else who's ever lived. In our text, he's being persecuted by the Pharisees, questioned. False accusations are being delivered against him. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Do you count all the good that this world can offer as loss? If you are doubting whether or not Jesus would call you his, ask yourself, some of these questions. Would you count everything as loss? Would you suffer the reproach of men, suffer loss of comfort, ridicule the world, or even death for Jesus? If yes, then you can be sure that it is Christ's spirit that dwells in you. And if you are suffering for Jesus, maybe it's the loss of a dearly beloved family member or the pain of physical injury or the self-killing pain of fighting your own sin and addiction, or the humbling pain of confessing your sin, repenting of it. You are not, your suffering is not a sign that Jesus is far from you. Jesus is more near to you in your sufferings than he may be at any other time, and his spirit transforms you to look like Jesus in your suffering. In your suffering is that spirit who shows the world that there is something greater than peace and pleasure and life. The world may not be able to see Jesus on a tree today, but they can see God's people suffer for a king who suffered for us. And how many of you know that to be true? How many of you who after suffering through loss or some other tragedy have said that your family was amazed at how the church responded? Was this not to them a picture of the glorious truth of the gospel? And then lastly, look to the future. Our hope only isn't that we will suffer well. Our hope isn't that Jesus died for us only or that he suffered in our place. Our hope is that he didn't stay dead. He didn't suffer forever, but he was risen on the third day. And by that same resurrecting power, we become partakers with him in grace 
His Spirit now lives in us and dwells in us and empowers us to obedient, glory, glorious lives which are going towards a glorious end where we will be united to Him in heaven where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, and no more tears. Find comfort in Jesus, for He says to you, Here are my brothers and my sisters. Amen. Would you pray with me?